This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Keller McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to have Nicole Fox with us. Nikki is assistant professor at California State University at Sacramento. She teaches in the criminal justice department. And she's the author of a fascinating new book titled After Genocide, Memory and Reconciliation in Rwanda, is published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2021. And it's this really interesting analysis of memorials and memory and reconciliation, an analysis from the ground up rather than from the top down. Uh, and, and I've interviewed a number of authors about memory and reconciliation in Rwanda. All of them are interesting and all of their books are wonderful. Um, this is something new uh, and, and interesting and exciting. So I'm excited to talk to Nikki about this. So Nikki, welcome and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. And for listeners who are new, um, Nikki cites uh, books by people who have been interviewed in the past in her book. And so I would just point to you that Susan Thompson and Jenny Burnett and Anu Chakravarti have all done interviews about their books. Uh, and they're in, on the website if you're interested in going back and looking for them. Um, so Nikki, we always start with the same question. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in acad- uh, being in academia? How did you get interested in the field of genocide studies and, and, and why sociology? Thank you, that's a great question. And I also just wanna note that I'm so honored to be in the, the company, so to speak, of such um, prolific and um, interesting writers as well. So it's nice to be in um, a podcast with, with their company as well as their work influenced mine. So I started off, um, I, I've often been interested in this um, question about how do communities recover after violence or war? And it was something I was interested in actually as a, as a child. We, our, our family talked a lot about the, the Holocaust, um, had, had family members that um, perished in the Holocaust. And so 
in my my childhood, I remember this this talk about about genocide from an early age. And my mom, actually, I remember her talking about the Rwandan genocide as it was unfolding. And I was I was young at the time. And I went into my my undergraduate very interested in the gendered aspects of war and how war affects communities. And this was at the time when the U.S. began their invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was a first year in college when 9-11 happened. So I think I just dated myself, but, um, but I really was concerned about this, you know, this war that was unfolding and more so how it would impact um, women and children. And then I went on to get my, my master's and was interested in the, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, actually. So that's what I did my master's thesis on is how does memory and identity get passed on through generations? And for my PhD, sociology ended up being this great fit for it because it had all of these tools to understand violence and macro level violence through this lens of social relations and also the the social construction of identities and gender. So sociology was a great home. And at Brandeis University, where I got my PhD, I had my sights set on doing my dissertation on the Bosnian um, genocide and looking at how gender shaped uh, recruitment and mobilization. And on my, one of my first days of school, the very first, um, people that I, a person who I became really good friends with was someone from Rwanda Mm -hmm. and we became really good friends and, um, started teaching each other how to cook our, our foods from our, our childhood. And, I became close with, with her family as well. And so I vividly remember talking to her about how I couldn't find any Bosnian participants for a study for my quality of sociology. And she said, stop studying Bosnia and start studying Rwanda. And um, so that, that started my um, journey to Rwanda and I, I fell in love with the country and um, developed a network of, of Rwandan friends in graduate school. So that's kind of the origin of this book. How, how about, how come memorials and memory? Yeah. So um, I also was really interested in transitional justice Mm -hmm. and courts. And what I started to realize is that sites of memory and um, especially these public permanent spaces are actually also vehicles of transitional justice. And a lot of the, the challenges that memorials face or people who are engaged in memory work or rituals, those are really similar challenges that truth commissions face and other mechanisms. And Rwanda in particular, was so fascinating because they had so many memorials in such a short time. And 
I had read a lot of interesting work, like Janet Jacobs' work on Holocaust memorials and gender and um, Young's book on, on memorials and how they are different depending on the orientation of those who are, are um, presenting the narrative. So how they differ between nations, even when they're commemorating the same event. And then I had a really fantastic advisor, um, David Cunningham, who did some work on and the Greensboro massacre. And I memory and collective memory is so entangled with other important issues after atrocity. So it's a, it's also a lens to understand stratification and power um, and victimology. And so I was really invested in that and trying to better understand that. And so much of the work around memorialization really looked at the structures and the architecture and the politics, but I wanted to actually ask people and talk to the very people who these spaces aim to commemorate and find out if they mattered to them and if they did, how. So you talk in the book about how Rwanda is saturated with memory. So, and you, you mentioned the, the number of memorials. So maybe you can say just to people who haven't been there, what does it look like and sound like and feel like for, for residents and visitors to be in a country that's so saturated with memory? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I described this a little bit in my book and memory also is dependent um, and the time of year in certain ways as well in Rwanda. And so you see temporal cycles of memory as well, because there's a mourning period from, from April to July in which the country is remembering the height of the genocidal violence. But even in a, you know, a random day in August, if you were driving around in Kigali and you would see mem- you would see sites of memory. And so there's these national memorials, and I believe there's seven or eight because it's changed since I was been there. And then last time I was there, there was over 500 little memorials or less, you know, less, uh, not on the national side, local memorials. And we're talking about a country that's the size of, you know, some compare it to like Vermont or something. So, so in a lot of ways, memory is very inescapable in the built landscape um, and the, the built physical environment. So you see crosses at schools, churches, uh, but in the commemoration period, you also are saturated with it in terms of purple banners um, commemorating the genocide on on most bridges uh, in uh, the roundabouts in the city. You see signs remembering and um, kibuka, so remember, and then the year. And you see those on uh, with the bank's logos and all of these these businesses as well who are doing it and and folks selling flowers on the side of the road. And so you would not be able to exist in April, at least in Rwanda, without knowing that it was the month that the genocide started. And so that's a very powerful experience. For, for both visitors, but also for survivors, um, which comes with both 
recognition of their violence, but also sometimes marginalization and uh, some trauma. In your study, you work with three different memorial sites. Can, can you say a little bit about those three memorial sites and why you picked them? Yeah, absolutely. So I visited sites all over the country to try to decide what sites would be useful in comparing. And what I wanted to know is I wanted to know if memorials had different stories depending on kind of what their orientation was. And what I mean by orientation is, were they focused on commemorating the past? Were they focused on a reconciliation narrative or project? Were they focused on education? And I also wanted to know if if the experiences that survivors have changes in terms of how um, urban the memorial is, or if it's in more rural areas. And so I chose memorials that that varied on those aspects. And so one memorial is more oriented towards education and one is towards more of a reconciliation narrative and providing services uh, to survivors. And then one is a lot more focused on commemorating by leaving the, the space intact of how it was found in 1994. And then I also had them pretty close together only so that I... I could also leverage that. So here there were these memorials within relatively close space together commemorating the same event. Why, why are certain aspects different? And does do these differences impact survivors and how they interact with them? And the, the answer was yes. <laughs> so most of your work is done at the ground level with individual people, but these individual people live in a world in which the government of Rwanda works actively to shape the way people remember the mm-hmm. genocide and the narrative they accept. So, so for people who don't know, what, how does the Rwandan government describe the genocide and its implications for the, for the presence? So that's a very complicated interaction, um, as it is with with most states. So there's certain things about Rwanda which aren't actually that unique, and that is that the state has an investment in how people remember the past. Uh, I I think that folks sometimes think Rwanda is very unique in that, but I I think that most nations and most government administrations have an investment in how people understand the past and that those narratives of the past are shaped by the the interests of present day social relations and power and money and and greed so so that is the same for rwanda but also rwanda is unique in that i the abandonment that Rwanda felt and legitimately during the genocide by the the United Nations and Western world has impacted the relationships they've had with aid and with human rights on on various levels. And so I the government has, an investment also in remembering the genocide to 
to legitimize their their power um, and and consolidate their their power as a nation. Again, though, I don't think that part's as unique as some scholars do, and so we might I'm I probably diverge with some scholars on how unique that might be to Rwanda. So these we'll say memorials serve the role of reminding people, but you also, you, you say they also serve other kind of roles. What, what, what kind of other roles do they serve? Yeah. And that's what I thought was so fascinating. And that's, that was also one of the, the benefits of doing qualitative research and also doing qualitative research for so long in these spaces. So I would spend weeks with individuals kind of observing their life at the memorial and then have interviews with them. Um, So I got to kind of see the way that what they said about what the memorials do also is, is performed and lived through their actions at the memorial. And so what I found is that while memorials do these, these national, nationalistic things that you, I think your, your previous question got at. So they serve state interests and they serve, um, these motivations for cohesion building and, um, all sorts of, of arms of nationalism. They also function in these communities as sometimes spaces for social networking where survivors meet and they talk about their days and they walk to school together. Um, they also provide what I found is a great deal of hope for survivors. And I think as social scientists, sometimes we want to avoid thinking about hope. Uh, it's hard to, you know, it's not thought of as objective and, and the emotionality of it. But actually, what I found is that even when survivors retold the narratives that were told by the state, they they didn't necessarily do it for reasons of, of nationalism or allegiance with the government, but rather the, the dedication in memory to memory provided them with a hope that maybe there would be a future without genocide. And if their actions could do something with preventing the devastation and brutality that they experienced their life felt a little bit more meaningful when they and these are for for folks that experienced you know the most brutality you know brutal violence that really human beings could and so i think that hope is a really important part they also you know had employment Lots of them were employed at the memorials, and sometimes that was gardening, um, or or sweeping, or giving tours. So it was both the glamorous jobs at memorials and the the less seen parts of of memorial upkeep. But even I speak about one of the gardeners in the book, but she took a great deal of pride in the fact that she swept the ground where her parents, you know, remains were kept. So they serve a lot of different purposes. They also are houses of evidence and um, some survivors feel like they're spaces of truth-telling or education. Well, there's a vocabulary word. I'm not sure that's the right way to put it in your book. And that's traumatizing. 
Yeah. What is traumatizing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I decided to keep that word, even though it was awkward in the English language, because that's what folks called it when I was there. And so traumatizing is an experience in which folks have a real or imagined flashback of the 1994 genocidal violence in which they often experience physical symptoms such as shaking or convulsions or screaming or you know actively reliving that that moment and it i'm hesitant to attach a, a western um diagnosis to it, especially without having any type of medical degree, but it, it resonates with what we might think of PTSD and even the kind of social sociology and the social construction of PTSD. But it is, um, I think it's starting to decrease since I wrote my book, but when I was there in 2000, um, 10 and 11 and 12, it was a real social health problem as well as maybe the, a psychological um, problem in that it was very contagious. And so if someone had, uh, was experiencing traumatizing or was traumatizing in that moment, it was easy for someone next to them to then also start it and for it to really spread like wildfire and, And there wasn't the resources to accommodate that. And so at one commemoration I was at, a woman got up and started talking out in detail about um, hiding um, under human remains and, and the smells and the, the, the feels that, that reminded her of that. And someone in the, the audience started screaming and, and having a flashback, I, d- I didn't actually understand what they were saying. It was in Kenyarwandan, but my translator said, you know, she's remembering being raped. And shortly thereafter, so many folks started having a trauma response, so much so that people were leaving in ambulances and the trauma tents that were set up were getting full. And they had to end the commemoration because there just wasn't enough resources to, to keep people safe. And, um, and there were certain individuals who are more, when I interviewed counselors that were more likely to experience that type of trauma response. And those were poor folks, women, survivors of sexual and gender-based violence, and also um, people who didn't seek any type of psychological help. And so uh, commemoration staff and memorials staff were, were deeply invested in preventing this type of trauma response because it felt like they weren't equipped to to do it. And some folks felt very adamant that it wasn't a healthy experience for those who were were having that response. Well, that leads to a question about the, the, the phrase you've introduced here about stratification of memory or the stratification of, of those who remember. So, so what do you mean by stratification of survivors yeah. or memories or, or whatever? now you want to use? Yeah, so I think that collective memory or the process of creating a national memory that, or a national narrative of a difficult past is always going to be stratified in stratified societies. So it, when countries have, or communities, inequality, that 
that collective memory is going to represent that inequality. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes those who have the power to speak and be heard or create these physical spaces are individuals who have more access to resources. But that's also deeply intertwined with this notion of traumatizing in Rwanda. So because folks see a lot of folks who are tied to the development of commemorations and the upkeep and implementation of of, um, existing memorials and new memorials, see traumatizing as unhealthy or detrimental. There are mechanisms that are put in place to try to prevent that. And one of those mechanisms is to not have quote unquote, strong testimony. And when I asked folks, what does, what does strong testimony mean? Cause we can assume that most genocide testimony would be quote unquote, strong or um, painful. It was really particularly memories of the genocide that involved sexual violence, sexual gender-based violence, or from someone who still wasn't doing well. So these were poor survivors, survivors whose um, struggled with such severe trauma and mental health issues that their children were were often not living with them or were living in um, homes um, or facilities that the church took on that weren't able to care for themselves or get an education or a job. And so avoiding those types of testimony was important in in keeping the audience safe. But what that meant was that certain survivors weren't represented in the national narratives of what happened during those awful days in 1994. And what we know about civic engagement and reconciliation is that it requires the participation of the the community, the whole community. And so when survivors didn't see themselves represented in this national memory, they were less inclined to be part of the community in other ways and also felt like their stories were marginalized. And this isn't, again, this isn't unique to Rwanda per se. So I don't want to say this is the fault of Rwanda or this is something that is part of Rwandan culture or the Rwandan government. Of course, all of those culture and government and all of that have interact in ways kind of in a dialectical way with memory. But we also see the marginalization of women's experiences throughout every known genocide and war. So in some ways, when genocide, genocidal rape and sexual violence was talked about in Rwanda, that was the unique case when it was talked about if you're looking at multiple memorials. Yeah, you can chapter about gender and sexual-based violence um, that I want to ask you about. But before I do that, for people who are, and, and there may be some listeners who are not familiar with the pervasiveness and nature of that um, particular kind of violence, can you just um, remind people uh, yeah. about the gendered nature of violence during this genocide? Absolutely. And just to give a trigger warning for those of you know, uh, listeners um, 
who might be sensitive to this topic and might want to pause it or come back to it, um, knowing that I'll be talking about sexual and gender-based violence. We, there are known instances of gender and sexual-based violence. And what I mean by this is rape, sexual assault, um, sexual torture, um, gender side, which is going after women um, or pregnant women, um, but also sexual violence against men and boys, um, forced sexual violence in the sense that um, men were um, forced to rape their mothers or their wives. So that that dynamic as well, as well is this is known and, and documented in um, every war and genocide that that social scientists have researched. And so war does not, war and genocide does not come without gender-based violence. And so that is why it is so shocking to, to see the lack of scholarship or attention paid to that type of violence. And it's not to say it's worse or better or or any ranking of that type of victimology during genocide. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard to talk about sometimes, but to say that it's qualitatively different and that there's gender dimensions of violence um, and that those gender dimensions of violence and gender dimensions of genocide result in gendered dimensions of the aftermath of genocide. And so unless we can talk about those dynamics that happen during genocide, we're going to miss key aspects of rebuilding. But in Rwanda, this was absolutely the case. And there's some important work on the gendered recruitment of men and killing the gender division of labor and how that meant that women were often killed with their children and men were killed with other men. Um, and also the pervasiveness of, of rape as a tool of control. And um, rape in times of war and genocide, like other times um, or other situations of rape, are is about power and control and domination. And so I think that's important for us to have as an analytical dimension of our research uh, and our policy recommendations after mass violence. So you, you write about how the three sites you examine address sexual and gender-based, gender and sexual-based violence in different ways. So yeah. how did they, what are the, some of those differences and why do you think they are, that they are? Yeah, so some sites didn't mention the pervasiveness, even though there was known cases of, um, of, of rape on that very site. And then one site talked about it quite a bit, very consistently. And then one talked about it more ambivalent. I call it ambivalence because it happens some of the time, but not others. And so I, I watched you know, probably hundreds of tours to try to figure out like, what were these patterns? And then interviewed guides and interviewed survivors to try to figure out what, what was going on. And there was a worry and a valid concern that people would traumatize by hearing this and that there wasn't resources. There was also a concern that 
it would create hierarchies of victimhood, which are also already in place in terms of other dimensions of the genocide. But um, there was this idea that you had to have gender neutrality if you were going to prevent the truth. And I, I asked, I asked guides quite a bit about that. And, you know, one said, well, when you're dead, you're dead. doesn't matter how you died. But what I was most interested in is actually the memorial that talked about it. I was most, because it wasn't that surprising that people didn't talk about it because it's often not talked about it. Andrea, um, Andrea Dworkin wrote that amazing piece in 1994 where she goes to the Holocaust Memorial looking for women and doesn't find any because gender is not talked about. Um, and actually just in 2020, the first ever memorial to sexual assault survivors opened in Minneapolis. So in 2020, even though we know that one in four women and one in seven men experience um, sexual assault, the first ever happened in 2020. Uh, so listeners should definitely check that out, by the way. Um, and so I was really interested in how is this silence that's so pervasive disrupted? And what I found is that guides actually used different kind of tools and mechanisms that were in this space that they had to talk about sexual and gender-based violence in a way that felt factual. So they talked about the weapons that were used against women. Um, they talked about like the blood on the walls. And again, this is um, a trigger warning for, for individuals who may need it. Um, but they talked about the, the weapons that were used um, for sexual torture on women. And by by doing, by having those right there, they felt like they were reporting on it and they weren't dependent on women giving testimony because frankly, there weren't a lot of women who wanted to give testimony because there was still so much shame about um, the sexual violence that women endured. Some survivors that I interviewed had not even told their husband yet. They had remarried and still not told their husband and some sought services far away um, for, for um, counseling groups so that they wouldn't be recognized. And so this one particular memorial, because it was left the way that they found it in a lot of ways, used that as a way to tell these stories. Um, one other tactic that guides had is they talked in a, almost a coded language about sexual violence. So they would say, oh, well, after the, the genocide, there were many women who had AIDS or other problems. And then they would pause and that was intentional. And then someone in the audience would say, what, what are those problems and how did they get AIDS? And then they would talk about it. Um, and then I think lastly, in the instances when it wasn't talked about, there were so many forces to silence those stories. And one of it is because, you know, the rape of, of women and children, because of the gendered nature of nationalism and, um, and even community structures meant that the rape of women and children was also a rape and a, of, of the community because women are 
considered the centerpiece of, of biological reproduction and cultural reproduction and religious reproduction. And so that felt so shameful and so such a, a crime that wasn't forgivable. And you couldn't wrap your head around forgiveness and reconciliation when you heard about that, that in order to keep a narrative and a dedication to reconciliation and like a bright future, the one that would disrupt that or puncture that, that narrative of reconciliation was, was left aside and sacrificed so that folks could imagine a brighter future. You mentioned in the book, I'm curious, excuse me, is there, was there any variation depending on the gender of the guide or the gender of the audience? Were men more yeah. likely to address this with men or? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I didn't see as much as I thought. Interesting. Um, I mean, I, I saw variation in, our, in my interviews with survivors. So like women survivors were much more disappointed and personally hurt by the lack of inclusion of those narratives where men didn't mention it. But I didn't see that. Most of the guides spoke to, um, they didn't speak to like all women audiences or all men audience. They were pretty um, integrated in that sense. There was though sometimes a, a difference of what they focused on depending on the audience uh, in terms of East Africans versus Western audience versus Rwandans. So like some guides felt like they didn't really need to tell that much details about the genocide if it was a Rwandan audience. But if it was a Rwandan audience that was young, they did because they were worried that they wouldn't know about it because they weren't alive during it. Or if it was an East African audience, they really wanted to emphasize the fact that violence has to be de-escalated early. Otherwise, we are an example of that not happening. So I, I think I mentioned this in the book, but for example, they at the time there was um, election violence in Kenya. Yeah. And so folks really wanted to talk about like how important it is to make sure that you prevent that type of violence from escalating. And same with in Congo or, or Burundi, they wanted to make sure that audience knew it. So how so clearly during the, the weeks or months of remembrance, Rwandans would interact with these memorials. Is there a so I'm reminded of a, taking students to Europe and and I think I was in Dachau and seeing a, a German elementary school class come in for their required visit. Are are there are school kids required to go to memorials? Are there how does this how do people interact with these sites? Yes, there has been massive curriculum changes um, in Rwanda in which students attend memorials on outside the morning months for education. And it's also grown exponentially since I was there. So when I was there, the, um, the, one of the national memorials wanted to have like a mobile exhibition so they could go all over the world and, or all over the country and um, be able to reach people at, you know, all different parts and in, in various uh, villages that maybe not even have access to, to roads or buses in the same way that folks in the city are able to. 
And then they also wanted a documentary area where they could show videos and documentaries. And when I came back eight years later, they had done that. So that was pretty remarkable. So these are also moving and changing spaces. So at one of the memorials too, they had dreams of having like a wall of names and now they have that. So you mentioned forgiveness and, and reconciliation earlier. You have a chapter, really interesting chapter on reconciliation. So, so maybe to start talking about this, you talk about a reconciliation formula. Mm-hmm. What is that? Yeah, so this was fascinating. I, as a, a graduate student who started in this, I did not know what to, to make of this. And this is a plug for, for doing multiple interviews with the same people over time, because I found variation in their answers, depending on the time of year. And also I was able to go back and say, okay, you said this, what did it mean? Or what did, what does this look like to you or feel like, or how would you have proof this is happening? Like, tell me more. So during my first wave of interviews, I asked folks about reconciliation and if they felt like it was happening and, and what they thought it was. And I was, as a, as a young researcher, trying to have an open-ended question in which folks were able to answer as they saw fit, because I didn't want, I was so worried about putting any preconceived notions or Western kind of ideals of reconciliation in that question. So the answer that I got was that, um, reconciliation was, um, you know, pretty formulaic in that a perpetrator admits what they do. Um, they tell the, the victim about what they do. The victim then accepts their forgiveness and the community, you know, moves on. So I got this answer, I think from everyone, but two or three people. And so I was like, wow, this is really clear. (laughs) So then I would ask, oh, so has anyone asked your forgiveness? And then the person would say, no, no one's asked my forgiveness. You go, oh, well, what about like, did you hear, did you hear of someone or have you seen someone? Nope. And there was one person that like heard about it. And maybe one person that saw, but this is, you know, over 70 people. So, so clearly this idea of the formula and the formula on the ground weren't the same thing. And so when I came back trying to tease this out, I started asking folks about that, that formula and how they felt about it. Um, how do you feel if this hasn't happened or how would you, how do you think things have changed or what does reconciliation look like or feel like? Um, if you were to tell me there's evidence of, of coexistence, what is it? What, what would you say? And what I found is that there's actually this dynamic process that's happening at a very local level that really is more about peaceful coexistence. So you can think about social harmony as being this, this formula that, that doesn't really happen, but folks really hope it does. Um, and then this local level peaceful coexistence where, where people take the same bus as someone who is of a different ethnicity, or you're no longer scared of being poisoned. Or if you live in a rural area, 
you trust that if you need to go to the hospital and your neighbor has a car, they would take you. You could ask them. Um, and those, those varied in terms of gender um, and age, but they were very local and, and depended on social relations and trust. And those seem to be like better markers of what reconciliation looked like. And memorials were a part of that. And they were part of this reconciliation formula as well as that memorials were believed to help that formula um, come to fruition. But the, um, the hard part about those formulas is that they don't just exist without disappointment. And so some people, and especially women survivors that are interviewed, were were deeply discouraged that no one had asked for their forgiveness and no one had told their truth. And so I think that sometimes those narratives about reconciliation and what they should look like or what they could look like can be also detrimental when they're considered the only pathway towards social harmony. And I think that Rwanda's political and historical narrative that there once was social harmony before colonialism really plays a part in in this reconciliation formula as well. And the West loves this, right? So like I mentioned this New York Times article, but like the the West loves this idea of truth-telling and reconciliation for other people, not for ourselves. Yeah, Rwanda is a famously Christian country. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about whether whether any of the people you you talked with, interviewed, worked with, how how they talked about faith and reconciliation. I'll just preface this: I was there in 2019, and um, and and I was there as 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 part of a group from the National Presbyterian Church, and. And we were told again and again and again about the importance of the Joseph story from Genesis as a, as a model for the way Rwandan society should be. Um, and yet, I also watched a, in, in, in some ways very moving and in some ways very uncomfortable, we were hosted by a, a church that had a circle of survivors and, and victims who were working together to... Um, try and figure out what reconciliation would mean for them. And so I wonder how did faith or religiosity or church membership, did that come up in your discussions at all or? Yeah, so it did and it, it came up also in earlier work that I did with um, Rwandan refugees in the US and the ways in which faith was both an obstacle and a resource for reconciliation and healing. So Rwanda was famously a Catholic, yeah, um, yeah, uh, country. And so since then, though, you've also seen the religious landscape of Rwanda really change um, with a lot of folks. So I interviewed a lot of people who had converted to other other religions. Um, That said, I think that religious rituals are really key to the aftermath of of genocide in Rwanda, both because they're 
there's sites of um, exchange. So there are sites of exchange of care of networks. That's where you can build social networks and that those social networks are really important for people checking on you or for people helping you raise your children. If you're a widow um, or if you've adopted a bunch of orphans, those networks of care that you find in religious institutions, whether that be mosques or, or churches, those are, are very key to the survival of the family in um, not to be, you know, cross, but like in transactional ways too. Uh, but I think that faith has also been used in a lot of ways to try to understand and make sense of, of what happened, that it, it works to sometimes order the disordered violence that people experience. But I also um, have heard from survivors that they felt betrayed by God or forgotten. Um, and a lot of memorials are sites of former churches. And so you can't really disentangle the religiosity of the country at that time. Uh, but also we know that religious leaders killed and murdered, but we also know that religious leaders saved and rescued. Um, and so I, I recently just published a, um, a piece with some colleagues about rescuers and religion. So I think it's an uh, important dynamic to, to look at for sure. And I always get hesitant when it's used as an explanation for violence or an explanation for reconciliation, because I think it can be both part of both. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, it was an open-ended question. Yeah. Uh, but it is something I find really interesting. Um, there's much more to do in your book, but we don't have time. But, but a couple final questions. Um, one of them is, you've got this really interesting, I don't remember if you call it an afterword or oh, yeah, whatever happened. it is, but a, but a much more kind of introspective discussion of process and experience and uh, and, and, and at least a little bit about gender and, and research. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the experience of doing these interviews and, and what you would tell other people who want to do this kind of research about what, what they can learn from your experience. Yeah, and thank you so much for reading that. That was actually one of my favorite parts of the book. So I, I appreciate you reading it. Yeah, I felt like there was so much silence around the researcher and the process of doing this work. There is a, a growing body of work and Rebecca Campbell does some amazing stuff on researching sexual violence, but I mainly wanted it to be a informal discussion for other students and, and especially junior researchers that, that may want to go on the field and, and ask these really hard questions. And and just to emphasize, like, it's not, uh, it's not about feeling like you're a martyr for doing it, but necessarily recognizing the challenges, the real challenges it is to do research on atrocity and genocide. Um, because you are going to bear witness to stories of the worst of, 
of humanity and the best, but that roller coaster is a, a difficult one to, to ride. And so I, I talk very, and I, I won't tell the story, but I talk briefly about how there were some stories that I heard that, you know, I were, were so hard to hear. And it was hard to know what was the most ethical thing to do in the more the moment. And, and what I decided was to listen to them and deal with how I felt about that later. I also heard stories of, you know, women who adopted eight children after the genocide and went on to raise them and become a, an advocate and people who did incredibly courageous things um, that are, that are almost superhuman. But as a, as a researcher, it was important. And I didn't realize this until, until later on to have some techniques um, of preventing secondary trauma or coping with the secondary trauma of hearing those types of stories. And so there was one I tell in the book where I kept hearing screaming at the pool when I took a a day off and took the kids I lived with and there was no one screaming, but I had just come from that commemoration I mentioned. And so I was really having some kind of auditory remembrance of it. And, and as a, a white woman who has experienced so much privilege in America, I felt tremendously guilty for feeling, um, trauma or, or sadness about hearing stories that other people had to live through. And what I eventually came to is that, yes, there is a a difference of privilege, but that guilt wasn't serving me at all. Um, and I did learn some mechanisms to, to cope and how important exercise was for me or planning certain days off. Cause I had gone to like funerals for 15 days in a row and just realizing that that isn't something that's helpful. And I had some really good friends in Rwanda who helped me through that as well. So or maybe, maybe this is not true. Maybe sociologists get this question a lot. Historians like me don't rare, don't usually get this, mm-hmm. but, but an applied question for, for people who are designing or who run mm-hmm. memorial sites or, yeah. or on boards of memorials, what can they learn from your research about how they can think about the sites they're designing yeah. or, or administering? Yeah, that's a great, that's a really great question. So I'm, I'm actually really glad you asked that one. And there's a couple of things. So one thing to do is to know that the work that they're doing in that memorials really do matter to survivors. And they matter in these significant ways by providing hope. Um, and they, they really can contribute to reconciliation projects of various ways. Um, and that this is something in, you know, that they should consider, but also to realize that the narratives shared at memorials aren't necessarily neutral, um, but they can be, you know, a stratified process in which certain stories are elevated and others are marginalized. And so to make sure that they're paying attention to the, the people who aren't at the table um, and that they would benefit also from ensuring that memorialization includes, you know, poor women or poor survivors 
and I, I just wrote a chapter and it sounds, um, simple, but in order to, to include stories about sexual violence, you have to consult sexual assault survivors, right? You have to include survivors. So if you want, um, gender to be part of the memorial, you're going to have to talk to women and men. (laughs) And so that, that sounds really obvious, but it, it does involve making sure that a diversity of, of survivors are consulted. And, and also I would, I would want to make sure that those who are, um, developing memorial just realize that the calendar year can impact what that memorial feels like or is experienced by survivors and to to be aware of those anniversaries and those commemorations and that those might not be the time to initiate certain reconciliatory projects because people might need to mourn during that time and then another time might be more appropriate. At the uh, the circle of survivors and and, and, or, and perpetrators I, I mentioned, and I'm not going to remember the words. Sadly, I didn't write them down immediately, but but I have a vivid memory of, of of one of the survivors talking about how there were some days when she could forgive, and others days when she could not, and it was not a linear process, and time mattered, and, and the person sitting next to her who had killed during the um the genocide responded that his job was to to wait until a day when she could forgive. Yeah. And I was struck by the kind of, as you say, the way in which the calendar matters. Right. In life events. And that that was true for traumatizing too. So Mm -hmm. while commemorations are most definitely the most public place where that type of trauma response occurred, survivors and counselors repeatedly told me it also happened after the birth of their first child or when they got married Mm. or on a birthday because those were times when they knew their loved one wasn't there you know that their parents weren't there that their husband wasn't there and uh, you know i i um have experienced the loss of of my best friend and and cousin this past year and i now really understand how that grief comes in waves and how mourning, you know, it's this hole and then your life grows around it, but the hole does never go away. And so when they're experiencing these, these moments of, of grief, that trauma response comes back. But yeah. And I think too, forgiveness doesn't always have to be the end all, you know, or the end result there could be, and that forgiveness could mean different things. Right. So I, I think having space for the diversity of that experience of forgiveness too is really important for, for communities. We could go on with this for uh, some time, I'm sure, but I've asked a lot of your time. So but a couple of questions before we finish. One, I always ask, um, and that's, that's to see if you'd be willing to to suggest a book or two or a, a documentary or a movie or a poem, something to the audience and, and to me that that was meaningful to you as you worked on this project that, that you would suggest we read or watch. That's such a good one. So I this would this is probably the hardest question you've asked. <laughs> <laughs> I saved the best for last. So um 
I actually don't, I don't watch anything anymore on mm-hmm. genocide. Mm-hmm. And that was to circle back. Just one of the things I realized that was a limitation that didn't, that was too hard. So I couldn't watch documentaries on Rwanda because it, the ones that really were good, they looked like the places I went to and they, it was too, it was too close. So I, I couldn't do that. And, um, I've just now started listening to books and reading books outside the ones for this book that are in my reference list. So I'm also a terrible person about that to ask, (laughs) but so I, I thought about this so much and one quote that helped me through this is in remembrance, there's life. And that's what I can give your readers. It's not, it's not lengthy at all, but I, it helped me remember the stakes of memory and that genocide's mission is to make once the community that was once there invisible and in memory after all of those people are killed and those schools are destroyed and those churches are decimated is the the one way that that those institutions and relations and people and ideas can live um and so i i had that quote above my desk while i was writing Mm -hmm. for 10 years um so I thought about that. And then I, I listened to a lot of music. So I will do a plug for that. I had different music lists for writing. And then I had like sad music. And there's some actually really powerful ones about genocide and mass atrocity too. And so when I was teaching, I would make sure to, to bring music into the classroom. So it's not um, the greatest answer to your question, but. I thought it was a beautiful answer. It's not an academic answer, but it's, it's yeah. good to have an honest answer. So that's beautiful. And, and it's kind of sad that I have to go to such a mundane question after a beautiful answer, but but it is on my sheet, so I should ask it. Yeah, go um, And it's the unfair one. What are you working on now? So that one seems so much more fair game than the previous one. <laughs> you are a true <laughs> academic. I'm like, oh, I'm ready for that one. But this, um, <laughs> the, the, what do you read? <laughs> outside your reference list. So I'm working on a couple great projects that I'm, I'm really excited about. One of them is with my colleague, um, Holly Nyeth, and we are working on one of the largest sets of qualitative interview um, data on Rwandan rescuers. And so we just finished collecting data with, I think, almost 170 Rwandan rescuers. And um documenting their stories of rescue. And also we're working on organizing their stories by um, community factors, such as like the onset of violence and um, the intensity of violence. And and that project was so uplifting in a lot of ways. Um, It was also really hard again for some of those stories, but some of these folks just went through incredible lengths to save others that they didn't know, or they knew very vaguely, or one woman breastfed multiple babies that weren't her own to save them. And now those individuals are doctors or advocates or lawyers, and um, they act in ways that 
are are really the most heroic and that I've ever heard. And so that gives a lot of inspiration. So that's one project. Um, and then I'm working on another on the survivor's memorial that I uh, mentioned in Minneapolis. And so a colleague and I just kind of documented the the amazing work that uh, Sarah Super and her team have been doing to create this beautiful space in Minneapolis and then um, starting to embark on how people engage with that space. So those are a couple and um, also uh, another project looking at the the Greensboro um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how people talk about that in private and public and in different ways. So those are, that's a handful of, of projects that are coming up. We've been talking with Nicole Fox about her new book, After Genocide, Memory and Reconciliation in Rwanda, published by the University of Wisconsin Press this year. Nikki, those sound like great projects. Uh, I hope that uh, as they come to completion, you're willing to come back on the podcast and talk about them. But for now, have a great end of your semester. I know you're grading, so plow through. And, uh, and uh, I hope that we'll get to talk again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.